It's always a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. And before we begin today, I'd like to force to bow for a moment in a moment of prayer. Father, I pray that you'll open your word to us. Speak to our hearts from your word. Father, I pray that you'll open our ears that we may hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. From the book of James, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. In order to make a usable tool, one must begin with some form of raw material. Now, the, the, the person making the tool or the piece is a master craftsman. Whether it's wood, metal, or in the case of an art masterpiece, the artist has to make his desired color palette with paint. And he uses different items from nature to do this. Well, in our society, it's easy to go and purchase paint or just purchase a tool or a piece of wood furniture. Shortcuts can be utilized in that realm, but in the life of a Christian, our life and our faith cannot grow using shortcuts. You cannot buy faith, nor can you buy salvation. You cannot use shortcuts to grow as a believer. The only way to grow is to place our lives in the hands of the master builder and let him build us from the ground up. This is where the epistle of James is so important. In the pages of the book, we find the tools and the materials that God uses to build us into the believer that can in turn help others grow. We'll then be, as Paul says, a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before time began so that we may walk with him complete, thoroughly furnished for his good work. Now, the book of James was written by a man named James. There were four men in the New Testament that, with that name. Only two of them are serious candidates to be considered uh, to be the author of this epistle. And contrary to popular belief, no, the epistles were not the wives of the apostles. Okay? And of these two men, the main name James, that was the half-brother of Jesus, appears to be the best candidate. It's interesting that John, in his gospel, tells us that not even did his brothers believe in him. James, the very brother of Jesus himself, did not believe in Christ as Messiah until after the resurrection. And after the resurrection, James believed in Jesus as Messiah. And he also became one of the great leaders of the church at Jerusalem. Paul's account of the resurrection tells us that Jesus appeared to James first and then to all of the apostles. Paul also says that Peter, James, and John are pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2. Tradition teaches us that James was known as Old Camel Knees because he spent extended time on his, prayer, on his knees in prayer asking for God to forgive the sins of his people. His knees were so callous, they say, they look like old, the knees of a weathered knees of an old camel. Now, James, like many of the other um, apostles, was martyred. Clement of Alexandria relates that James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple. And when he didn't die from that, they began to stone him and finally beat him with a club. 
Back in 1950s, now we're going to date some of you here now. How many of you remember the, the show Dragnet? Any of y'all remember that show? Only one or two hands going up here. Okay. Come on. There you go. Okay. There's a show called Dragnet. And in the show, there was a main character named Dr. Uh, his name was Detective Joe Friday. There were words, famous words that he said all the way through the show. You remember what those words were? Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Yeah. Well, James's words and his epistle are very authoritative. Just the facts. And you'll find that as we go through the book of James over a period of time. It's the earliest written text in the New Testament. Even though it was Jewish in its content, there were great, there were great teachings for all believers within its pages. James uses Old Testament allusions some 40 times and more than 20 references to the Sermon on the Mount. James, the book of James and things that he writes resembles the wisdom literature found in Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and some of the Psalms. It has many short, pungent statements about living the Christian life in a godly way, practically, not theoretically. He also refers to nature 30 times. And contrary to what many people believe, James does not contradict Paul's teachings. He complements them. And we'll see that as we go through the book. James, like Paul, fought a heretical teaching that was rampant in the first century church called antinomianism. That's a fancy word for saying anti-law. Basically, what it means is, once you're a Christian, you can live any way you want because your sins have been forgiven. It doesn't matter. But Paul said this, what Consent you in sin to receive grace? God forbid that you live in sin, that grace may abound. This book was partially written to combat that antinomian thought process. We'll see James giving us great wisdom and counsel concerning a number of practical essentials that we live by and go through in the Christian life. Trials, poverty, riches, justice, speech, worldliness, and prayer. James presents a clear urgency for God's people to live godly lives because of the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our obedience to God is not just outward conformity, but it's a life lived from an active faith. James weaves the gospel through 108 verses and 59 obligations. I'll give you an example. In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious, he will show it three ways. You'll bridle your tongue. That is self-control. That's discipline. He'll care for the widows and orphans in their affliction. That's kindness. He'll keep himself pure, unstained from the world. That's faithfulness. And you'll find all three of those qualities in the life of a believer. As he says, the man that is religious are also fruit of the Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, If you keep the law and are guilty of breaking one command, you are guilty of breaking all the commands. This shows us that we're all sinners and need a Savior and advocate. In chapter 4, verse 6, James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace is available to those who turn from selfish pride in their life to a humble faith. That's humility. 
Chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In and of ourselves, we cannot show true faith and obedience, but God gives us the supreme gifts of saving grace, which is given to the humble and wisdom to live godly lives. The genuineness of our faith is measured by our sovereign God, allowing his children to endure trials and tests in life. If trials never occurred, then our faith does not grow. Our spiritual muscles need to be exercised. Let's think about it this way. If you buy a jacket, a brand new jacket, and on the label it says waterproof, but you only wear the jacket in dry conditions, you haven't put the jacket to the test. The real test is wearing it in a downpour like we get here in the summertime here in Florida. Does it keep you dry? Well, guess what? If it does, then it's a good waterproof jacket because it's been tried and proven under fire, as it were. Our faith is tested and proven under fire. On the screen, you will see the theme of the book, the perfecting of our faith, the perfecting of our faith. And also on the screen, on the next slide, we will see one of the theme verses from the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. In other words, if you're going to talk the walk, then walk the talk. Years ago as a child, I remember singing a song, you know, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands, stomp your feet, your face will surely show it. Well, James's version of that song would be, if you have the faith of Christ and know it, your works will surely show it. That's James's version of that. And that brings us to our text for today. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, let's read those again, those verses again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And may you be perfect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These verses introduce the fact of various trials that all believers will endure during their Christian life. James is definitely a letter and very sermon-esque in the way it's presented. He does employ allusions, figurative contrast, illustrations, and dialogues as well as difficult statements. So as we continue looking at our introduction, a couple of things, quick things I want to look at. Who wrote the letter? We know that James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote the letter. He introduces himself with a very humble introduction. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have boasted, I, James, and the elder pastor of the first church of Jerusalem and the half-brother of Jesus. He could have boasted that. But his authority had nothing to do with his physical relationship with Jesus Christ. But it had everything to do with his spiritual relationship with Jesus. James, no doubt, lived a very humble life, one that exemplified the life of a servant who lived under the control of the Spirit of God. Secondly, who do we serve? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's very possible that James is using these terms to affirm the deity of Christ. Look at it this way. James, 
a servant of Jesus Christ who is God and Lord. Listen, we serve a big God. We serve with the big picture in mind. What is the big picture? The big picture is the kingdom ruled by a big God. Jesus was very radical in his teachings about the kingdom of God. So trials come ultimately to further the kingdom and to glorify King Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. What is our identification? On the screen you see the term servant. It's also in the Greek known as doulos, bond servant. Bond servant. What is a bond servant? A bond servant is one who voluntarily sells himself into permanent slavery. One who forever is the property of his master and would never leave their master for another one for any reason. Now, what's our first point we're looking at today? The implications of being a bondservant. Implications of being a bondservant. Absolute obedience to the commands of our master is the first implication. With absolute obedience comes two things. One, absolute humility. A bondservant is a person who does not seek privileges, but gives one completely to the service of their master. In this case, Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. The second uh, thing that comes with absolute obedience is absolute loyalty. This person has no interest of their own, but serving the interests of God. Profit and preference has no room in which to lodge in a servant's heart. Absolute obedience to God proves our relationship with him. Our love and faith are demonstrated through absolute obedience. The second implication of being a bondservant is the adoption of an honorable name. The adoption of an honorable name. The name bondservant of God means that we serve a sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. This brings a good form of pride that is honorable. Apart from God, we can do nothing. The honorable name of bondservant of God is good. There have been many in the Bible that have been given given the name servant of God. Moses, Joshua, Caleb, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Job, Paul, and Peter. And it's interesting that both James and Jude, who were both half-brothers of Jesus, start their letters in the same way. They are bondservants of Jesus Christ. They saw the significance of their spiritual relationship, not necessarily their physical relationship. The adoption of this honorable name means that our freedom, peace, and glory are all found in submission to the will of God. True biblical leadership is not defined by demonstration or pursuit of power, but displayed through service to Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord. So we see the implications of servanthood, obedience to your master, and an honorable name. The next thing I want us to consider is the identification of the recipients. Look at the second part of verse 1. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. This letter is to the 12 tribes that have been dispersed because of persecution, which began in earnest with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 under the mad rabbi Saul of Taurus. Acts 8.1 says this, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's important, and we'll talk about that in a moment. This persecution continued under Herod Agrippa. We're in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, we know the first century church grew exponentially because they preached the gospel, they defended the gospel, and they lived the gospel. It's estimated that the membership of the congregation at this time was well into the many thousands and thousands of people. Persecution drove them from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, farther and farther away. As those persecuted Christians fled from the intense persecution, they took with them the message of the gospel. For in chapter 8 of Acts, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Notice that it was the people who were scattered that preached the word, not the apostles, not the pastors. It was the people. Acts 8.1, as we read a while ago, says the apostles remained in Jerusalem. You remember what Jesus told his followers just before his ascension? You will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The congregation had not completely obeyed the command of Jesus, but instead became selectively obedient to Christ's words by not taking the message beyond Jerusalem and Judea. Sounds kind of like the 21st century church today, comfortable within our four walls. Remember the big picture, the kingdom of God, which is big, is bigger than all of us. Jerusalem and Judea were gospel-saturated, while all the while Samaria was ignored, and well, the poor Gentiles were left out in the cold, unevangelized. And I say to you today that partial obedience is disobedience. Persecution forced the Christians to scatter to the uttermost parts of the world. Philip, one of the first deacons, preached the gospel in Samaria, which was 99 miles away from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Later on, Peter and John joined Philip. Acts 11 tells us that the messengers from the church went as far as Phoenicia, which was 300 miles, Cyprus, 250 miles, and Antioch, some 300 miles. And the word says this, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Poor Gentiles, neglected because of the cultural straitjacket worn by the Jews. Some did go and preach to the Hellenists, who were Jews that adopted the Greek attitudes and dress and the like. But remember, in that day, there was no planes, trains, or automobiles. All they had were camels, donkeys, and their feet. If you average 20 miles a day walking, that means you have about 10 to 15 day trip to preach the gospel. I ask you today, with our cars and modern technology... Would you be willing to drive one, two, three hours, or even maybe 10 or 12 hours to preach the gospel to those who need to hear? The church was predominantly Jewish in their culture. Therefore, James's letter reflects a Jewish mindset of the gospel and life. The letter was probably written about the time the church expansion was taking place, mid-40s, maybe toward the latter part of the 40s A.D., we identify the recipients as Jewish Christians 
And we see the implications of servanthood. And even though James was written to Jewish Christians, we as fellow believers must live as bondservants of Jesus Christ. The next thing I want us to see as we look at our text is the illumination of a servant's true heart. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a couple of things about this illumination. The first illumination is recognizing the situation as we see in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. Listen, James identifies because he knows what these Christians are experiencing. He says, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're facing various trials, testings, and temptations. I know you're suffering. Could you imagine if we received a letter like the book of James today in the 21st century, what some people would think? How nice. A letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. Don't worry, be happy. Throw a party. Listen, Saul was bent on destroying the church and all Christians. The word tells us they were entering house by house, forcibly taking men and women to prison. What are trials? What is it talking about? They are tests or an examination. It is any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. There's two main types of trials of many different kinds. One, your hard experiences experienced by all humans, as described in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where he says, those such as is common to man. All experience trials because all have sinned and fallen short of God's whole standard of holiness. The second type of trial is those that lure one away to do evil. We would call this more of a temptation. The fact is not if you're going to experience trials, but when or whenever. I guarantee you it is going to happen to you. And it has happened to me. Considering trials and testings, I found some interesting statistics that just really blew my mind. Open Door USA said just in the last year, over 360 million Christians living in places where high levels of persecutions and discriminations are happening. 360 million Christians. 5,898 Christians are killed for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. And 4,765 believers are detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Listen. Our God is a sovereign God that knows all that is taking place in and on his creation, especially within the lives of his children. Like the song we sang earlier, you are faithful forever, perfect in love, sovereign over us. We are recognizing the situation. Trials are going to come your way. The second illumination, the second part of verse 2, rejoicing in the situation, Count it all, brothers, count it all joy, my brothers. Consider it all joy. The New Living Translation says, consider it an opportunity for great joy. The word count can also be uh, translated consider or evaluate. It means to weigh out. This is the first command in the book of James. 
This first command, count it all joy, is a financial term, meaning to evaluate the way you look at trials. It means doing something and continuing to do it. In our society, companies are all, all the time taking their products and introducing the new and improved version of their product line. You know, when in reality, they may put a new, some paint on the outside and it's still the same old thing inside. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Well, we're to develop a new and improved attitude that considers trials from God's perspective, not ours' perspective. These words do not mean that when you're in your midst of trials, you throw a party. Yay, we're experiencing trials. Whoopee, hip, hip, hooray. No, we consider it joy because God has seen fit to allow you and I to be tested. That means we belong to him. That, my friend, is a reason to be joyful. It's not a me thing, but a we thing. Look at what he says here. Count it all joy, my, what's that word? Brothers, say it. Brothers. You and I are not in this alone. Individual perseverance, when each one of us individually persevere, that helps the community of Riverside and the church as a whole to persevere together. We consider trials and tests pure, total joy. Regardless of what you may think, hard times are not a curse from God, but rather a great opportunity to joyfully mature in Christ, becoming Christ-like. Listen, you don't have to show up strong. Just show up and don't give up. Evaluate the way you look at trials. That, my friend, is a very radical approach. found a verse in a great old hymn that I really like, Like a River Glorious. It's a hymn by Francis Ridley Havergal. One of the verses says this. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We may trust him fully all of, for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him wholly true. The chorus says this. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised perfect peace and rest. The norm is, woe is me, I'm going through a trial, I'm undone, I'm just falling apart. But the radical view is, Lord, this really hurts. I'm very uncomfortable in this situation, but Lord, I trust you as my loving Heavenly Father to produce that which is good through trials in my life. 1 Peter 5.10 says this, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So recognize this situation and rejoicing in this situation. Our third illumination is the reality of living in the situation. Verses 3 and 4. The reality is... When your testing of your faith produces steadfastness, the steadfastness has its full effect. You will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The key is not to rebel against the situation in which you find yourself, but rather let God use the trials and tests to produce godly fruit. 
The first godly fruit is steadfastness. Some translations use the word endurance. Others use the word patience. What does that mean? That means to withstand tenaciously the pressure of the trial until removed by God. It means to don't lose heart while under trials. It's a spiritual toughness. And sometimes trials are not, th- not only things, but people. You ever experienced that before? Yes. The second fruit, he says, when it brings forth steadfastness, when it's complete, it brings forth you're perfect. What does that mean? That you're mature. That's driving the servant into deeper communion with God and developing a greater trust in God. This brings about a stable, godly, and righteous character. Then the next word we see in our verse here is complete. Completeness. Finally, the trials bring all the parts together to make a whole person, body, soul, and spirit, being complete and meeting all expectations. But look at those last three words. Say those words with me. Lacking in nothing. Say it again. Lacking in That means having any and all things needed to live a life worthy of the gospel and living a life worthy of Jesus Christ. You have everything needed to become a mature believer. This, my friend, is a very radical approach to your trials in life. It is completely different than the world will experience trials and testings. I'm here to tell you today that James is not a self-help guru But he is a man chosen by God to deliver a special message, a specific message to God's people on how to live through trials. Sorry, my throat's really dry today. Our time of trials is not a time to rejoice less. James says, consider it all joy. Our trials are not a time to pray less. James says, anyone suffering, let him pray. Our time of trials is not a time to love others less. But love your neighbor as yourself. And on the screen, there'll be two words here. Life as a servant is not mere theory, but reality. I want you to think about those words as I go through this. Theory number one. Don't focus on the eternal, but on the right now. People don't want to hear about eternal life sometime in the future. But they want to hear, how can I access the good life now? Instant gratification, instant satisfaction. Reality is, people are hungry for real, genuine conversations about eternity. Don't be content with staying within your four walls. Our satisfaction, our gratification comes later, delayed gratification. I was thinking, how in the world can I really describe instant gratification versus delayed gratification? The best way I know to describe them between these two is grits. Say, what in the world is that southern boy talking about now? Grits. The most gosh-awful thing, as far as I'm concerned, on earth is instant grits. You get them quick, but are they worth eating? (laughs) But listen, you give me some grits that have cooked for a while, so they're smooth and creamy you put that butter in there, they're buttery and just good. You know, I, I'm going to borrow a uh, phrase from Campbell's Soup years ago. Mm-mm, good. Listen, true eternal life only comes through delayed gratification 
And what is that? That means time. It takes time. A servant lives for the eternal, not the temporal. Second theory. Don't communicate the gospel too quickly or they may turn away from you. Develop a relationship first. Listen, relationships are very, very important. I, I, I believe that's very, very important. But listen, the reality is gospel conversations should take place, place sooner rather than later. Personal example. I made friends with a particular person. And we talked at times, many times, you know, a few times, you know, maybe eight or ten times we talked and just shot the breeze, talked about this, that, and the other, and everything in general, nothing in particular, you know. But I've never really discussed the gospel. And probably a week after our last encounter, I found out that this person had died suddenly. I don't know about this person's eternal state. It hurt my heart deeply. But this did, this, this did teach me one thing that I've taken to heart. Gospel conversations are for the now, not tomorrow. Life as a servant means gospel conversations happen now, not later. Theory number three. Don't give many answers, just sit soaking sour with people in their questions. Stop trying to answer non-believers' questions and just be with them in their doubts and misery. Listen, we, need to do, we do need to listen well. We do need to be with people. But the reality is, people are looking for real answers. And we have them in the gospel message. Give the gospel and let the Spirit of God work using the Word of God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. How does that apply to us as servants? Servants have the real truth in the Word of God. Theory number four. Don't waste time preaching about the God, just the gospel, because people want to hear good, feel good about themselves, not hear another lecture. Just get up there and preach something that makes me feel good inside. Reality is, Preaching the gospel isn't just for non-believing skeptics, but believers need the gospel just as much. The gospel is not synonymous with outreach and evangelism. Although Paul did say, do the work of an evangelist, what does that mean? We should be sharing the gospel, rooting every sphere of life in the good news of the gospel. Preaching the gospel is central to the life of the church. Believers need the gospel they need to hear it, repent, and believe. Non-believers need the gospel. They need to hear it, repent, and believe it. Right after Jesus came on the scene in Mark chapter 1, we have these words from the lips of Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. What does that have to do with us as servants? Servants need the gospel for daily life. Listen, we don't have everything figured out. We don't have it all figured out. But we do know that life is not theory but reality. And the reality is we go through trials with God's help. We give testimony to the world because of the radical way in which we approach trials in our lives. Trials are personal, showing our imperfections and our need for an active faith in a living Savior. 
We think we deserve better than what we have, especially if you're experiencing trials. But what does the gospel have to say? The gospel says we deserve hell. We experience trials so God can grow us to maturity. That is really what we need. And what is that? That's known as grace. What is grace? God giving us what we needed, not what we deserved. Again, James 4, 6. God gives more grace. And as it is written, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You notice in that one verse, James uses grace twice. You know what that shows me? Grace is the message of God's grace. The gospel is the message of God's grace for sinners. The gospel is the message of God's grace for sinners. This is why believers need the gospel every day. The next time you experience trials, stop and thank God that he's giving you what you need for that time in your life. Our God is bigger than all of our trials. Can I share with you my version of these verses? I've been going through the book of James, and I use a, a little, um, just like a diary of the book of James, and I just write my thoughts and all, and as I go through this, I wrote this. I want to share this with you. As a bondservant of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord, I count it joy when I experience various kinds of trials because the testing of my faith produces endurance. And endurance produces maturity and completeness, completeness, which means I lack nothing to go through life with all of its ups and downs and trials. Listen, my friend, joy during trials is very, very radical. John Piper relates a story of a young lady called Marie Durant, who was a Reformed believer back in the 17th century. 14-year-old, bright, attractive, marriageable young lady was brought before the authorities not to commit an immoral act, nor to brought before uh, for criminal charges of any kind, not even to change her day-to-day -day behavior. She was brought up on charges of believing by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. She was asked to do one thing and one thing only, recant. After her refusal, she, along with 30 other women of like faith, were placed in prison by the sea for 38 years. She and her fellow martyrs scribbled one word on the wall of their prison, and that word was resist. The moral of this story is that she endured this fiery trial. We cannot endure if a temporal hope is all we have. There is hope beyond this life. John Piper adds this, if future grace extends into eternity, then there may, be a, there may be a profound understanding of such patience in this life. James 5, 7 later encourages us, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Understand, a radical approach to dealing with trials is adopt a radical attitude, consider it all joy. Understand a reassuring truth. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and submit to the refining process. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is one way the true faith responds with practical godliness under testing.
adopt this radical attitude, this radical approach toward trials in your life. Become a servant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and consider it all joy when you experience trials in your life. As I was going through this, I was reminded of the words of the song by Andre Crouch called Through It All. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had questions for tomorrow. There have been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. I thank God for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he brought me through. For if I'd never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. I'd never know what faith in God could do. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. Our example of a bondservant, above all bondservants, is found in our Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Mark chapter 10, we have these words. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. He was talking to his disciples. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A couple of questions to consider. Number one, are you a bondservant of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord? Think about that for a second. Are you a bondservant of Jesus Christ, who is God and Lord? The only way you can be that is to repent and believe the gospel. Number two, how do you handle trials? Normally, woe is me, or radically, Lord, this hurts, but I consider it joy being your child, and thank you for being with me through this trial. Third question, as I close, what is preventing you from exercising the faith given to you by God to believe in Jesus, who is God and Lord? Jesus, the same Jesus that was born of a virgin, the same Jesus who lived a perfect life, the same Jesus who died on the cross to take the punishment of our sins upon himself, the same Jesus who was buried and rose again on the third day, giving those who believe victory over hell, victory over spiritual death, and a promise that one day we will be with him in all eternity. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials Knowing your trials produce endurance, and when endurance is finished, it produces maturity and completeness, leaving you to lack nothing. And also, leaving you as a workman that does not need to be ashamed. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'll give to all who believe and trust in you the grace needed to go through their trials. Lord, give faith to those who need to repent and believe the gospel.
draw them to yourself today. And Lord, as your child, I pray that I will be a faithful bondservant of Jesus Christ, who is my God and my Lord. Please grow me through the trials that you allow into my life so that I may be a mature, complete disciple and servant that has eternity values in view. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever.